going to be finishing out chapter 1 today. Uh, chapter 1, verses 10 through 16 will be our text, and our context will be healthy doctrine. As you turn, and let me, let me just uh, introduce our topic by saying, by saying this. If you, want to get, if you want to avoid getting stuck with a counterfeit bill, the trick is knowing what to look for. In fact, uh, I Google, you know, how do you determine if money is counterfeit? And most of the websites, uh, Secret Service being amongst those, list from four to eight to perhaps ten different things that you need to look for in terms of determining if money is, is real or fake. But all of them listed this one thing. The best way to determine if something is fake is knowing what the real looks like. That, that makes sense? And so those who, um, especially the Secret Service, when they're trying to uh, you know, catch people and um, make sure that they are, are trained in, in, in the sense of knowing counterfeit bills, they don't look at models and examples of counterfeit. They look at the real thing and are so intimately, intimately familiar with what real looks like that when they see something that's not, when they, when they juxtapose fake to what's real, they automatically can spot the fake. Um, and that brings us to our text today. Um, we're in a five-week series, if you're just joining us, in the book of Titus. And uh, this is a letter of Paul to one of his protégés in the faith. Paul and Titus travel around, uh, around to many of the places where Paul would go and start churches. And this letter is sent to Titus to help him establish and get going some things that uh, Paul had started on one of his missionary journeys that landed him in Crete. Um, Titus was there. Uh, Timothy actually was there. Uh, excuse me. Paul was there. Um, he left uh, Titus on Crete uh, where he, Titus, Paul had begun to plant. I'm getting my names mixed up. It's all, all these people. Um, Paul is, you know, basically Paul left. He continued his mission on and, uh, and he leaves Titus there to finish what he had started. Amongst those tasks we talked about last week was appointing leaders, appointing elders um, to lead the church. And uh, we talked last week that elders are ones that, um, that have the, the oversight, the, the pastoral shepherding function of a local church. And Paul gives uh, Titus some very exact qualifications that these elders, these leaders, need to have. And you can find that in verses 5 through 9 of chapter 1. And uh, particularly, they felt in the areas of family life, overall character, and doctrine. Now, as we get into our text today, apparently there were some, um, some things that were going wrong in the churches at Crete because Paul describes, after, immediately after he describes the office of an overseer, of an elder, he starts to address what an ungodly leader looks like. Um, last week, we concluded with this verse, verse 9. Uh, an elder, a leader, must hold firm to the trustworthy word is taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. And then, uh, interestingly, Paul will, uh, next week we'll look at chapter 2, verse 1. He says, but as for you, Titus, teach what accords with sound doctrine. So our, our text today is, is it's sandwiched in between this idea that healthy leaders lead the church and the church needs to have healthy doctrine. And then he talks about in between that what an ungodly leader and an ungodly church looks like. So that's going to be our context today. All right, let's read these uh, verses together, starting in verse 10 and going through verse 16. Let's read. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers, and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. 
They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we pause to say thank you for the gathering of your church. We thank you for a beautiful day that you've given us to gather. Uh, This is the day that you've made. Uh, Give us uh, a reason to rejoice and be glad in it. And you've already done that. Lord, as we approach your text today, the uh, this, these words of Scripture, the authoritative, infallible Word. God, we stand under your Word, not over it. We listen uh, to your voice through it. God, we pray that we would be um, encouraged by uh, these words that Paul leaves Titus for a young church that were, that were being established and developed. And we pr- pray that you'd uh, give instruction for us as a young church doing that same thing. God, we pray that we would hear um, just the, the gospel, and the gospel would challenge us and, and, and draw us closer to Jesus. Uh, Holy Spirit, uh, you know us best. We pray that you'd come in the, in the midst of these words and land them on uh, hearts and the, the fertile soil of our lives that we might be uh, uh, exhorted, uh, challenged, uh, and, and changed under the hearing of your word. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So um, here's what Paul is saying. Uh, really in verse 9 of chapter 1 and then uh, verse 1 of chapter 2. He's saying that this is why it's important to have godly, sound elders in a church. He's saying because you're going to experience um, false teachers who buck up against all that's right, all that's sound, all that's godly. And so if you're an elder of a church, you need to be able to identify Particularly, you need to be able to rebuke, contradict, and silence, he'll say those words in the text, um, those who are presenting false teaching, false gospels to the church. Because as a shepherd, as an elder, you're supposed to be protecting the church. And, and really, his message is, um, why, do you need, why do you need godly, sound elders uh, in a church? Uh, to guard it from false teaching. Healthy churches need healthy leaders, but healthy churches also need healthy doctrine. So our goal today really is to to understand a little bit about why false teaching is so harmful, hurtful, detrimental to a a congregation, especially a young congregation. Um, My hope is that you would hear a little bit about what the gospel is and embrace it. Um, a, A third thought, a lot of times we come with this idea that doctrine and theology are big words for big heads that are trying to be nitpicky. And my, I guess a third hope would be that you would see the importance of, of, of understanding the doctrines that, that Scripture uh, portrays for us and that you would be encouraged to know it well so that you can spot something false when someone is, is uh, trying to teach it to you uh, or, more importantly, trying to make you believe it. It's important for our own spiritual well-being, both as individuals, but also as the church, uh, to understand that healthy churches need healthy doctrine. 
Paul is conveying to Titus three main ideas here in our text. And the first one is that false teachers are a danger to the church. False teachers are a danger to the church. We're going to spend an inordinate amount of time on this one idea. In fact, it's going to take us through the whole text, and then I'm going to add two more ideas onto that. So don't be afraid as I'm going on and on and on and on with this. I mean, this is the, this is the main thing right here. False teachers are a danger to the text. Uh, verse 10. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers, and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. So Paul is going to give us in, in these seven, six verses, six descriptors of, of who the false teachers are and what they profess, what they teach. And in verse 10, he gives us three. And the first one that he names is uh, insubordinate. The root of this word is someone who's rebellious. All right. For you parents, think about your kids. All right. Literally, he's talking about someone who is rebelliously obedient. They reject spiritual authority. Their whole lives are a demonstration of, of arrogance and, and pride. They insist on uh, what they're saying is right and everybody else is wrong. They refuse to allow anybody, especially those who are mature, to speak into their lives. They're insubordinate. Secondly, he says they're empty talkers. And this means two things. Firstly, it means someone who talks and talks and talks and talks. I mean, it's like a blabber. Someone that likes to hear themselves talk, um, and, but what they're saying has no content to it, especially in a spiritual sense. It's someone who says a lot of things, things that might even interest people, make us laugh, entertain us, but the, but the, uh, but the root of it is rotten. It's not doing us any good. In fact, in fact it's probably doing us some harm. Um, the other idea is what they're saying is actually slanderous. They might be uh, undermining us by their words, putting a segment of people down, just saying things that are harmful to us, but harmful to many people. And thirdly, he says in verse 10, uh, they're deceivers. Uh, this means that their intentions are to, to mislead, to take someone by what they say and take them down a, a path that's against what the scripture would say. And so if, if the scripture is presenting to us the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, then false teachers would be ones that are seeking to lead people away from that. Pretty much knowingly, but also sometimes unknowingly. All right, as we continue, look at what he says in the latter half of uh, chapter, chapter 1, verse 11, the second part of that. He says, false teachers are motivated by greed, teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach, we talked a little bit about uh, about shameful gain uh, in the negative sense when he presented this idea of of elders over the church last week. And someone that's motivated by greed, their motivation is they want more. They want more. Uh, they have an insatiable desire to get more for themselves rather than having a love for God and for for His people to teach. Uh, to teach and see people grow in the, in the things of God, they're all about, well, you know, it only matters, it, it should only matter to you what I think and, and what I care about, and they're professing that and they're teaching that. Um, in, our, in our members class, we talk a little bit, a little bit about our mission, and the, the mission of the Transit Church is to glorify God by making disciples. Emphasis on our whole purpose in all that we do, we see it as glorifying God. And so someone that has 
that's motivated by greed would not be putting God and his glory first. And so, I mean, that's a clue for you. If you ever, if someone ever stands up here and they're promoting themselves, what they think, their ideas, how they want to do it, more than an emphasis on our whole purpose, singular purpose is to glorify God, then that person has a little bit of motivation by greed um, in what they're saying and what they're doing. Fifthly, uh, Paul says to Titus, false teachers distort the gospel. And this really is at the heart of what it means to be a false teacher. Look at verse 10 again. For they are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. And Paul uh, talks about the circumcision party in Galatians. He he uses the term Judaizers and and who these people are, are Jews who had converted. You know, they they were they were Jesus worshipers. They they professed to believe in Jesus. But they said, well, yeah, we love Jesus. We believe he's the Messiah. We know that salvation only comes through him. But we're Jews. And so anybody wanting to be in, in our family, they got to do a few other things as well. They got to observe the law. They need to get circumcised. There's, there's some ritual and rules, the things that we do. Then God will love us. So that's what Paul is jabbing at in verse 10 when he talks about um, the circumcision party. And you know, Paul gets pretty heated in Galatians when he talks about uh, the Judaizers in regards to them adding to the gospel. Believe in Jesus plus get circumcised is, is a Jesus plus gospel. Believe in Jesus plus observing cer- uh, certain ceremonial laws. Believing in Jesus plus observing certain ceremonial days is adding to the, the simplicity of coming to faith in Jesus based upon what he's done, not your own work. They were distorting the gospel by adding to it. A couple other places in this text, Paul sort of mentions this same idea of distorting the gospel. Uh, Back in verse 11, here's what Paul says. It says, for shameful, they're teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. We just looked at that. And then in verse 14, jump down to there, look what he says. Um, They're devoting themselves to Jewish Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. And so they're adding all these ascetic syncretistic ideas of what it means to worship God, and they're putting it on top of simple faith in Jesus and saying that's, that's the gospel. This is a Jesus plus gospel. So Paul is saying the reason why you have godly elders, why you need to have godly elders, is because in Crete and by extension everywhere else to include at Transit Church, there's going to be false teachers who will try to distort what's right. And so we need, to be, we need to have men who are raised up to counter this. And so back to the idea that I started with in the opening in regards to the counterfeit bills, but it applies here too. In order to stand, in order to understand what's wrong, you sort of gotta have a understanding of what's right. If you don't know what right looks like, you're not gonna be able to pick out wrong when it when you're uh, approached with it. So Paul says they're distorting the gospel. Of course, I've used that word a lot, and so most of you should be asking yourself, I mean, what is, what is the gospel? What, what, what then does right look like? And there's many ways that we could articulate the gospel. Um, I've, I've taught you several um, short sentences. Jesus in my place. Does that make sense? Jesus died for my sin in my place on the cross. Okay? So salvation comes because Jesus took 
my place, and I trust in him. Another way of, of saying it, Christ died for my sins, and he was raised. That's a little thing that you learn in Sunday school when you're a kid. Christ died for my sins, using all five of your limbs, and then you raise it up. He was raised uh, as in the resurrection. That's another way of looking at it. Here's what, what the gospel truly means. It means good news. Uh, the Greek word is euangelion. It's the, it's the picture of a king going out to battle, of having a victory, and of wanting to spread news of this victory over a formidable foe through all his kingdom. And so he gets a herald, and he sends his herald on his horse through all of his kingdom, and that herald goes and proclaims, we've won, we've been victorious, we've slain our enemies. And that really is the, the essence of the gospel. It's, it's the, the proclamation, the announcement of good news. Well, what's the good news? That God has sent his son Jesus to die in my place for my sin. That God has loved me through his, the, the perfect life, the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Perfect life because I can't live perfectly. Death on the cross because uh, Romans 3.23 says, uh, all of us sin. Romans 6.23 says, my sin deserves a penalty. The, the wrath of God comes against me because of my sin. And then the good news of the resurrection, we'll talk about that on Easter, but it gives me the power to live. God, Jesus lived a life I couldn't live, and he rose from death to give, to, to give me the life that I should live and the power to live it. A lot of times we, uh, uh, we reduce the gospel to just what we read in the New Testament, that we, we see the life of Jesus. He lived a good life. He was a good man, set many examples, died on the cross, rose from the grave. And then Paul may say a few other things about it. But really, the, the entirety of the Bible is about the gospel from beginning to end. It's that God is righteous. He's sovereign. He's holy. He's just. And in God's goodness and by the, um, the counsel of his own will, he decided to create a world. And he put man and woman on it, and he created them in his image, Genesis 1, and 127. But he created us for his glory. And it was supposed to be this union of creation uh, to include human beings that existed in harmony with each other forever. And ever and ever, amen. But something happened. God gave a command to Adam and Eve, subdue the earth, be vice regents over it. You're going to represent me on the earth. And I'm, I'm assuming they did that for a while, but something went wrong in some place. They were deceived by the, by the Satan coming in the form of a serpent, and they did what God said not to do. They rebelled. This idea of being insubordinate. They rebelled in the sense that they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And from that one disobedient act and, and of rebellion, sin comes into them and it ekes into all of God's creation such that um, everything is tainted by sin. God, who's holy, righteous, just, hates sin. And so what we see in the Bible is a condemnation on, on all of creation because of that one rebellion in Adam and Eve in the garden. Now, you, I mean, honestly, the way we think is that we think that, well, I mean, come on. There's some good people in the world doing some good things. What about Gandhi and 
Um, I can't think of anybody else. Mother, Mother, this is the only one. Mother Teresa, all the popes in the world, Santa Claus, Oprah, and all that stuff she's giving away. I mean, what about that good stuff? Well, here's what the Bible says in Isaiah, Isaiah 64. He says, even on your best day, that your goodness that you're doing in your own strength is as good as a, a filthy rag. And, and the, the picture he's giving us is this filthy rag is like a, a, a rag um, stained with a woman's menstrual cycle. I'm not trying to be gross, but that's really the picture that this prophet had from God of, of what we do when we try to do good. Okay, And so there's nothing that we can do that ever measures up to the goodness that God requires because he's holy and right. He's 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 holier than we could ever imagine that he is. And so we're a debased, radically depraved people, even though we don't realize it. And there's no way for us to meet the requirements of the holiness that God requires. The same holiness that he gave to Adam and Eve, they lost it. And because because they're representatives of all creation, we come into this world, I mean, with, with no hope. But that's not where the story ends. The gospel says that God sends Jesus. Jesus, who lived in eternity, condescended is the theological word. He humbled himself. He lowered himself to be incarnated, to, to come from God to, with nobody, just spirit, into flesh. We celebrate this at Christmas. Jesus was born as a baby. He grew up as a man. He wore our clothes, walked our roads, ate our food, drank our drink. But the Bible says this Jesus guy was also God. We don't know how it, how it works, but it did. And at some point, Jesus realized that his mission was to rescue us. It's like we're all in an ocean. You pick your ocean. I'm from the East Coast. We're, we're in the Atlantic. It's nice. It's warm. It's beautiful. Down by, like, you know, Carolina Beach, where we used to go. Maybe you want to go to Hilton Head. It's, a, it's, it's water, right? But you don't have a boat. You're way out there, and you can't swim. It's like, uh-oh, I'm getting to drown. You need rescue. God sends Jesus to people like us who are in the middle of an impossible situation, and Jesus comes. He throws us a life preserver. Not only that, he, dump, he jumps in with us to identify with us, and he rescues us. How does he do that? He lives, that perfect, he, he, he lives humanity perfectly because we can't. We sin even in our thoughts on our best days. Not, you don't have to do a thing. It's just in you. To, to rebel. Your, your, your heart is bent toward rebellion against God. I know I'm beating you up on this, but it's true. You're not good. And so Jesus, he saves us by dying on the cross in our place for our sin. Penal substitutionary atonement. Sin requires death. God allowed an atonement of blood sacrifice to appease that death. And in the Old Testament, we saw all these animals being slaughtered over and over and over again so that it would appease God's wrath. But the, the people knew, I mean, we can't do this. I mean, are there enough animals to keep appeasing God with all this blood? That's why God sends Jesus. Not so that we would just stop slaughtering animals, but so that 
your guilt will be taken away. And the Bible says that when you trust in Jesus and his perfect life, his death in your place for your sin, and the resurrection that he lives to give you the power to live in his, this life out loud in his strength, not your own, then, I mean, God adopts you into his family. He gives you a new identity away from whatever the identity that you, that you had before, all those ways you were trying to earn your way to God. He calls you his own, makes you a part of his family, gives you eternal life. That's the, that's the love that God has for us. And, and guess what, folks? That's the gospel. I mean, I, I didn't say, I didn't even say it all. I've been talking for 10 minutes. That, but that's the gospel. It was one more thing in regards to the gospel. It's, it's one thing for you to know what the, the good news of Jesus is, but it's another thing for you to appropriate it for yourself. I mean, it's good news. It's like a good story. I mean, that, good, that was a good story. But how do you how does it become good for me? This is what the Bible says. It only becomes good for you um, through repentance and faith. It's when you realize that you're in that ocean. You can't swim. You're like gurgling water and you're on your last gurgle. And if you don't call out for help, you're going to die and you're going to die in an eternity away from God. It's a picture of, of, of hell. And so to believe in Jesus necessita- necessitates that we turn from sin. That's what re- repentance is. Repentance is turning from sin. And if you're turning from sin, you've got to be turning to something else. And what do you turn to? You turn to Jesus. This is believing the gospel. And so the gospel is our only hope. It's, it's our victory. In Christianity, Christianity is not about you being good, doing good, and obeying so God will accept you. Christianity is, is this. It's I'm accepted fully by God through faith in Jesus. Therefore, I live a transformed life. That, that is the gospel. Christi- the gospel is not um, words that we say at the end of a, of a sermon to just close everything up and, and pray, give people some, a chance to, to come and, and receive Jesus. Is that part of the gospel? Absolutely, that's part of the gospel, but but it's way more. And and here's the thing. This is what the false teachers in Crete were doing. They were saying, yeah, we believe in Jesus, but this is is all this other stuff you need to be doing. You need to be getting circumcised and following rules and, and the rituals of our faith, and then God's going to love you through that. And this is what Paul's letter in Galatians is all about. I mean, he's beating down the Judaizers because this is what they're saying. He calls this a false gospel. When we add to the gospel, telling people they need to do more than have faith in Jesus to be saved, you're distorting the gospel. All right, I just spent 15 minutes on that. I got to speed up. All right, the last uh, descriptor that Paul gives, the sixth one, false teachers lack evidence of of gospel transformation. Look at verse 12. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. This is a quote from an ancient, um, an ancient philosopher by the name of Epimenides. Uh, Epimenides was a, uh, a native of Crete. Obviously, he had written some, some clever words, and Paul uses these words of Epimenides to indict the, the false teachers in Crete, but also to indict those Christians who had been influenced by them. I mean, look at these words. These are some uh, these are some condemning words. He says, "This is what Cretans are like. Uh, they're liars. They're evil beasts, 
and lazy glutton. Sounds like a guy on a Sunday afternoon watching some football, right? I mean, those aren't necessarily good words. The, the most condemning words uh, that he says are right in the middle, evil beasts. Uh, Crete, I, I told you I got a story. I haven't told you that. Uh, Crete is a beautiful island in the middle of the Mediterranean, and it's known for not having any wild beast at all in this pristine, just like Mediterranean kind of a kind of a setting. And so what Epimenides is really saying is that the human inhabitants of Crete are almost as bad as if we had wild animals. And so Paul is I mean, he's just laying it in on these Christians who've been influenced by false teachers. And he's saying, look, at check it out. You're acting just like the, the Cretans. You've been influenced by them and you don't know it, but you're a sheep. Sheep don't go around like wild animals, like devouring stuff, okay? evil beasts. You're supposed to be in community among God's people. Don't let the, the way of life of the, of the Cretans influence the way that you're living for Jesus. False teachers lack evidence of transformation. God, continue in verse 15. Uh, he says, to the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are, are defiled. It actually seems like this verse is a little out of place because, I mean, it's just like really abrupt. But here's what Paul is, is saying. He's saying there's freedom in believing the gospel. There's freedom from needing to pursue other things in order to be right with God. He's saying if you've been made pure... By trusting in Jesus, trusting in his, his perfect life, his death on the cross, and his resurrection, then you truly are pure. You don't need to go and uh, uh, avail yourself to a whole bunch of ceremonies and rituals to, to externally make yourself pure. If, if you've been saved by Jesus, he's declared you pure. And if he declares you pure... You're, poor, you're pure. You're free from performance. You're free from pursuing God in, such that you're seeking to do work for him to earn his favor. God doesn't need your outward performance. And then he continues, continues on in verse 16. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Again, um, very unflattering words that Paul is saying there. And he's simply saying these, are, these Cretans, and, and by extension, those the, the, the Christians on Crete that the, the false teachers had influenced, they are they say they believe the gospel, but their, their lives are, are trying to earn favor with God, which proves that they don't really believe the gospel in the first place. So the, the tendency for us would be to say, you know what? Those false teachers are a mess. We need, to, we need to point them out. We need to get rid of them, right? I mean, that's really what you do with a text like this. I mean, stay clear of, of false teachers because they're bad news. But here's what Paul is, is exhorting Titus to do in regards to the Christians in Crete. Um, and, of course, by extension, he's telling us the same thing, is that, I mean, if we're honest... Some of these descriptors fit things that we believe and do right here, right now. I mean, think about it. I mean, how, how perhaps have you been insubordinate, that you've been rebelliously obedient to those who are in authority, spiritual authority over you, that are supposed to be over you, refusing to submit to them, being self-righteous, being prideful 
and arrogant. How many of you are empty talkers? Like you just like blab and blab and blab, and you know some of the stuff that you say does not accord with the Bible, with the gospel of Jesus Christ, but you say it anyway. Superstitions and and the things that you grew up with that you know the Bible doesn't support, but you but you still hang on to it. Verse 16, how many of you perhaps profess that you know God, but there's no, there's no manifestation of, of, of godliness in your life, such that a person would know you and know that you are of God? Galatians 5 talks about the fruit of the Spirit. I mean, how do we know that, that you're a Christian? Love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. I mean, do we see those things in your life? Paul is telling Titus, here, get your congregation together. Tell them, don't focus on, on them, the, 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 the lazy, no good, evil beast, Cretans. But let's, let's let, allow the Holy Spirit to turn you inward and see in those areas that you might be missing this as well. Here's a second point. False teachers can have devastating effects on those who believe their lies. False teachers can have devastating effects on on those who believe their lives. I'm going to be really quick with this. It's in verse 11. He says, They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. And so Paul says that when false teachers get a foothold and people begin to listen, they can upset whole families. And really, there's, there's two trains of thought here. These were house churches in the first century. The church met not in buildings you know, like, like we're meeting right now. They would meet in someone's house. And so Paul is saying those families that are coming and gathering with the church that's meeting in a particular house are going to be influenced by false teachers. It's the idea of it only takes a little bit of leaven to leaven the whole lump of dough, right? Okay, I don't know nothing about cooking, but I can just quote that verse. That's what he's saying. It only takes, it only takes one little bit to say the wrong things and to set examples of doing the wrong things before all of us are are infected with that, that thing that makes us do the wrong thing, like the walking dead, right? And it's like, you just need to get bit, or like scratched, like one little thing. And like, you need to just like, go ahead and kill me. The other thought is, is in relation to the congregation. It, it only takes one person, one, uh, you know, a, a, a segment of people in, in, the, in a church like this, in a community group even, to taint the whole thing uh, to, with false gospel, with things that are untrue, with an uh, insubordinate spirit that gets everybody out of kilter, and, and then the church is, is, is feeling the effects of it. We're led, led astray by, by false teachers. Here's the third point, and this is our, our last point, and then we'll look at two points of application. Uh, false teachers must be dealt with by pastors of the local church. This is what Paul is getting to. We just can't let false teachers run rampant throughout the church and allow them to do whatever they want, we have to do something about it. And Paul tells us what we should do about it. In verse 9, he says uh, they should be rebuked and contra- uh, contradicted. And so an elder must hold firm to the trustworthy word is taught so that he may be able to give instruction and in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Okay, so if we see false teaching in our midst, there's the, those who are professing uh, false gospels are supposed to be rebuked and contradicted. And in verse 11, he says they should be silenced. They must 
be silenced. And here, I, I got a vivid imagination. I see like this Jack Bauer, you know, 24, special forces kind of dude, just dropping from the sky and just choking the, you know, <laughs> choking a false teacher out. I mean, that's what I would want to happen. <laughs> yes, I'm your pastor. <laughs> I need to qualify that. All right, so... But that's not it. In in verse 13, he also says that those who have been influenced by those words need to be rebuked as well. And here's the idea behind being rebuked. Being rebuked is not it's not like we're going to cut your legs off and, and, and try and kill you. Really, this is a display of the love of God for someone to see you in error and to challenge you on it. You know, just like, you know, that's not lining up with the gospel. Paul did that in Galatians 2 with Peter. Okay, and and. You know, Peter probably felt bad about it. They might even have, you know, I mean, they were button heads. They might even have words for each other. But if the Holy Spirit's in me and the Holy Spirit's in you, then the Holy Spirit is going to adjudicate. But my responsibility is to come and approach you as to, to the error that I see and, and turn you loose so the Holy Spirit of God can, can do what he's supposed to do. And so this is what Paul's telling, telling Titus to do. Uh, those who are false teachers need to be rebuked and contradicted and silenced. They need to be told what they're, that what they're teaching is contrary to the truth of Scripture. Uh, hopefully the Holy Spirit will open their eyes, okay, that they'll be repentant, they'll turn to God in faith, and, and if they're not, then we need to figure out a way to get them out of the midst of the congregation. Otherwise, they're going to be leaven, leavening the whole lump. And I think this is the truth in regards to, you know, this idea of dealing with false teaching in a church. Um, we're demonstrating the love of God when we when we come against something that's not godly. And we have to do that courageously. It shows a concern for the well-being of, of the people of God and even God's glory when we protect the good news of the gospel. And some of you have seen this text, just not just this, this um, verse um, 9 and 11 and 13. Some of you have seen this text. You've seen it used... Um, You've seen it abused. You've seen a pastor standing up and he might say, well, if, if anybody disagrees with me, then you're spewing false doctrine and false teaching. Um, and of course, that's uh, that's the reason why Paul says that the, the government of a church should be a plurality of elders so that we have uh, you know, multiple accounts of wisdom such that if one of the leaders goes astray, the others can can surround him like a boundary and get him back in order. But let me let me give you uh, just a, a few things on what this looks like in practice. Two points of application. I'll be quick about this. Wise leaders recognize that not all theological differences demand a fight. Only those that distort the gospel. So what 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 how we implement these ideas in in Titus here is that we want to we want to we want to spot false teaching when it's happening. We want to silence it and rebuke those, but lovingly bring them to a reconciliation uh, you know, with God, his gospel, but also with the church. But we also don't want to fight about everything. There's like, like Some things just don't need to be fought about. Why? Because the Bible doesn't make a big deal about it. And so uh, almost like you go, let me give you an analogy of, of what Nurse Heather does uh, in the emergency room. So uh, nurses triage us when we go into the emergency room. So if I come in with a gunshot wound or a heart issue, they're going to, they're going to tend to me as an emergency before they can tend to you, and you just got a, a, a hurt on your pinky, right? Or like, I'm, I'm suffering from dehydration. You need to come see me now. 
All right? So, so very much the same way, we need, to, we need to tend to issues in the church with an, an air of how serious is it in relating to distorting the gospel. And I, I, I think I, I just divide those into three different areas. You have primary issues. Primary issues are those things that relate to the gospel. The, uh, this is essential Christianity. I would say things that uh, regard our statement of faith. You go to our webpage, look at what we believe. I mean, those are non-negotiable for us. This is what we believe about God, about Jesus, about the Holy Spirit, about how salvation comes about. If you don't believe those, you might be a heretic or maybe not a Christian or, or something less than that. Okay, So we're going to fight about those. And to be a part of our fellowship, we want you to be in agreement with those things. But less than that, you've got important issues. Important issues are important biblical topics that we might not agree on, but they don't violate the gospel. And so we could even be in the same church and differ on important issues, but be okay. Okay? And then you have those third level issues, tertiary issues, where we're just agreeing to disagree. Okay? It's like, I don't believe that. The Bible doesn't, the Bible doesn't make me believe this. I'm going to give you examples of all these. Um, and so let's just agree to disagree and still function as believers. Um, there's, there's some trick to this. We're not saying it's simple to decide what issue goes into which pot, but we're trying to reduce the amount of tension in regards to what we're supposed to believe and just how to adjudicate this. And so this is what we do. We got close-hand issues, open-hand issues. If you come to membership class, that's how I articulate it. We got close-hand issues. Those are primary and some secondary issues, all right? I ain't opening my hand. I'm holding on to them. If you don't believe it, you might not want to come to this church. And then there's some open hand issues. It's like, all right, there's there's a whole bunch of stuff in Christianity that we don't. The Bible doesn't articulate. Um, God doesn't give us specificity on it. And if you want to believe it, that's that's okay. I pretty much got a you know a belief about everything in the Bible, of course. We all do, okay. But some of them just aren't worth fighting on, fighting over. So let me give you a couple of ideas on, on primary issues. Here are our primary issues. These are in the closed hand. I already said it. Our statement of faith. Okay, Who is God? What does Jesus come to do? Uh, what does the Holy Spirit do in our life? And how is the person saved? Those are in the closed hand. If you don't believe those, then you might not want to come to our church. Um, all primary issues are in the closed hand. There are some secondary issues, important issues that are closed hand. Form of government, we believe that. Um, God wants us to oversee his church in a plurality of elders. Uh, I would tell you the, we are a complementarian church, which is uh, a statement on the role of men and women in the home and in the church. We're not egalitarian. You won't see a woman coming and preaching to you as your pastor. Uh, we don't see women being ordained to uh, vocational ministry as pastors over God's church. We talked about that last week because we don't see it modeled in Scripture. Okay, so that's a closed hand issue. Some secondary important issues that are open hand: method of baptism. Some of y'all come from Catholic and uh, Presbyterian and Lutheran um, denominations. I- I'm not going to argue with you. And the Bible doesn't. You know, the the, the church is is. Um, is divided on the mode of baptism. Do I understand why folks would sprinkle and pour over their, their children? Absolutely. It's about covenant. I go to a Presbyterian seminary. I'm like, I'm like down with the Presbyterians. But I would rather dunk you than pour or sprinkle you. <laughs> right, right? So I'm not going to fight. We can be in the same church, holding hands, singing about Jesus together. But I, we're not, we don't need to fight about mode of baptism. 
but we do baptize by immersion here. Views of creation. Uh, some see the uh, some see uh, cre- uh, the 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 days of creation in Genesis as a metaphor. Some see it literal, and so that gives you an old or young earth. The church is divided, and so we're not going to fight over that. Same thing with eschatology. Okay, I, I take the the, the historic reform view. I'm an amillennialist. Okay. We are in the last days right now. There's not going to be a rapture. Jesus is going to come. He's going to um, cause the resurrection to happen. We're going to be in the new heavens. We'll see the ushering in of the new heaven and new earth. All right. If that surprises you and you, you're a rapturous person, oops. Okay. But, but you don't have to leave the church over that. Okay. Because here's the thing. There's so many views. We don't know. Okay, there's not enough in the Bible. That's why we have so many views, because the Bible, God only tells us what he wants us to know. What does Matthew 24 say? Jesus is coming back. You got to be ready. That's, that's, the, that's the big news. All right. Jesus is coming back. Be ready. If we can agree about that, then. All right. Open hand issue. Y'all are like, look at me like I'm crazy. Um, third level issue. This is, this is a little bit second, a little bit third. There's an overlap here. Spiritual gifts. All right. What do I believe about spiritual gifts? I believe they exist in the church and they're all to operate. What's in the, the important, like almost closed hand? How they operate. All right? You ain't going to come up in here um, prophesying what you want, speaking in tongues how you want. I mean, I believe those gifts are for the church, but, but it's a little bit in the closed hand how they operate. Okay? And so we would fight about that. We're not going to fight about whether they exist or not. If you don't believe they exist, you're a secessionist. You're welcome to come or go, okay. But how they operate, I mean, you, I mean, that's in my closed hand. All right, I'm scaring all of y'all. One, uh, one intelligent guy said this: the problem with some churches and their leaders is that they won't fight. The problem with others is they won't stop fighting. The key is to fight for what pertains most essentially to the person and the work of Jesus, the gospel, with the humbly loving courage that, re- that the gospel requires. What are we going to fight on the most? Those closed-hand issues. I, God has called me as a pastor to fight for those. Who God is, who Jesus is, what he's come to do, uh, what the Holy Spirit is, what he does in our life, and how salvation looks in your, your life and mine. We're going to fight over those. The rest, we can sit down over coffee and talk about it. Here's the second issue. I'll be quick on this. There's a tendency always for us to drift away from the gospel. Why is the gospel so important? Because we, we drift from it. We can't help it. We're sinful. And the first way that we drift from it is in terms of, of legalism. Here's what legalism is. Legalism is where you add to the gospel. This is a Jesus plus idea. You, like, I, I believe in Jesus, but I feel like I got to do all these other things to make God love me. And the Bible doesn't teach that. Um, in our culture, legalism is when you take your rules and your personal convictions and you elevate them to the level of Scripture. And then you expect everybody else to do what you do because you think it's right. I was brought up this way. Oh, I saw it done like this. The guy on TV said, I'm supposed to do this. And we do, I mean, I see this in your lives every week. Y'all want me to give you some examples? It's how you raise your kids. I make my kids eat all their food, and if they don't eat it, they come back for breakfast and it's, it's there. Some of y'all do that, and I'm saying I'm not saying that's not right to do, but don't make don't don't make that a rule for everybody else because that's your rule. 
Some of you make rules about how you discipline your kids and you judge other people because they do or don't uh, discipline their kids. You know, spare the rod, spoil the child. I don't really care how you interpret that, but you can't tell somebody how to raise their kids. Don't make a judgment on people based upon how they discipline or don't discipline their kids. Use of alcohol. Some of you judge based upon whether a person does drink or doesn't drink, what they drink. Don't do that because the Bible has liberty, but it also says don't let your liberty be used excessively so that you cause somebody to stumble. I mean, the Bible is our gauge. I would, I would um, recommend to you all uh, Tulian Division's book, G, uh, um, Jesus Plus Nothing Equals Everything. It's a, it's a book on, it's an exposition on the book of Colossians, and it's him growing in his life out of legalism, and it's an excellent book. I've read it at least twice. I probably need to read it two more times. Jesus Plus Nothing Equals Everything. The second way that we drift is license. License simply means permission to do something or loosening our restraint. And let me give you a, a different kind of definition. Uh, license is denying in word or deed the powerful transforming effects of the gospel. And Paul hits this very well in Romans. Paul in Romans is trying to set us free. He's trying to set us free from the law. And, and this is what Paul is saying. He says, you're free to be loved completely and fully by God apart from what you do. And anticipating what, how we're going to respond to that, Paul comes to chapter 6, and, and, and he gives this beautiful um, picture of our argument. Like Some will say, well, well, if we loosen all restraints, then we're going to go crazy. If you say that the grace of God allows me to do everything, I'm free to do everything. Don't you know people will take advantage of that? And you'll have Christians like doing all kinds of stuff. And this is what Paul says. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Don't you know that all of us who've been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For we've been united with him in death like his. We shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. I could go on. Here's what Paul is saying. He's asking us to consider that we've been transformed. Okay, when you're truly saved, you're transformed, and you're transformed so that you would be free, but that freedom is, is making you fall more in love with who God is and making you want to be like him. And what's, what's the, the, the chief description we give to God? His godliness, his holiness. And so when you're truly transformed by the gospel, the gospel is going to make you more like God, which is to make you holy. Holiness is not a means of achieving rightness with God, but God... But the gospel is not contrary to holiness. I'm not saying that exactly how I want to say it, but I got to go on. I think we're always going to be a church, and we should be, that swings between this pendulum of, of just balancing ourselves out between legalism and licentiousness. We should be, okay? We want to, we want to be right in the middle of it. We want, we want, to, we want to be obedient to God and his word. But we also want to live within the freedom of the grace of God because he wants us to be free, to not feel like we have to work for his ple- work to earn his favor. Why? Because Jesus has already done that for us. If my trust is in Jesus, God loves me beyond what I do. 
But God is also trying to make me look more like Jesus. And Jesus was not loose. He was holy. He was he was the the epitome of godliness. All right. So I'm going to include with this. What do we do with this? I mean, what do we do with a text like this? It's talking about like false teachers, people doing crazy stuff in the church. I would say if you're a Christian here, then God is calling you to by the gospel through the Holy Spirit to repentance and faith. That's what he wants you to hear. He wants you to hear that perhaps today you're here and you're even here checking a block, going to church, trying to make yourself or someone else that you came with feel good. And and here's the thing. There's no way you can satisfy God by doing things for him. How do you satisfy God? You believe in his son. You recognize that you need to be rescued, that you got some sins that are unaccounted for. And there's nothing that can atone for them except for the blood of Jesus, his son. Jesus died on the cross in in your place for your sin. And when you trust in that, God gives you his righteousness. He gives you eternal life. You haven't earned it. You just you receive it by the love of God. If you're a Christian then uh, you need to be diving more deep in the gospel. The gospel is inexhaustive, and you need to be reading the Bible, searching its depths so that you would grow in it, so that in this pendulum of legalism and licentiousness, license, you would be right there down the middle, okay, obeying God, not feeling that you have to work your way to him, but also knowing that God loves you and frees you to be, uh, to be loved by him. Lastly, for all of us, we need to ask the Holy Spirit to speak to us. Uh, you know, this text talked about where are we being deceived? Are we insubordinate? Are we empty talkers? Are we deceptive? Are we greedy for gain? Are any of those things present in our lives to which we might be a false teacher in the church? This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Uh, I pray that uh, these words uh, in Titus would be life to us and um, God, I pray that, uh, that you would deliver us from all those ways that uh, that we are false teachers to ourselves, our families, but also to the church. I pray that you would help us to stray from those ways that we try to earn your favor. And I pray that you save us from all those ways that that we are unrestrained in our application of grace. Jesus, help us to see you rightly. It's God lifted up on high, our Savior, our Rescuer, the one that's come to set us straight. And it's in your name that we pray and love. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.